All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, the main host. Joining me for part two of our discussion of The Search is Fran from A Healthy Dose of Fran. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is okay, staying (laughs) nice and warm and cozy and... I don't know why I've decided to get really kind of deep into everyone's personal lives here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Folks, if you have not bought The Search, what are you doing? Uh, because we are diving into part two of The Search today. Uh, if you have not read these comics, uh, we are we are full on spoilers. Uh, we are talking through this entirety of this here. Well, part two at least. Um, and highly recommend you check it out. If you don't care, then uh, maybe you should check out our part one discussion and kind of see where it goes from there. If you really want to jump in just now, welcome. I don't know what you're doing, but welcome to the journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a few things that we're gonna that we're keeping in mind with this series. Uh, first and foremost is Zuko's evolution as the Fire Lord. Uh, this is a huge transition period for Zuko post avatar world um second is azula's journey through madness clearly we saw her at the end of uh avatar the last airbender in such a fragile emotional state and it has clearly only gotten worse three is piecing together the shards of the past and boy oh boy is this part full of piecing together shards of the past we're gonna bring up (laughs) a lot of that today folks oh yeah and fourth and lastly is the influence of Ozai and Ursa, especially the way that they parent Azula and Zuko. Mm-hmm. So the search was written by Jean Luen Yang. Uh, the art and cover were done by Guru Hiru and lettering by Michael Heisler. This was released in 2013. And this is following up on part one of the search where Zuko asked the gang to come and help him out because he had discovered that there was some clues leading to where his mother's location might be but it came at a cost azula said that she needed to accompany him and so in the hope of restoring dignity to his family and getting some answers zuko ventured out with the gang and azula as they made their way to ursa's village of hira'a However, Azula was making things pretty difficult all along the way. (laughs) And uh, they got into some tuffles, some tussles, and some fights. There was a wolf spirit that puked up moth wasps at him. And uh, the whole thing ended with Zuko discovering the letter that Azula had hidden away in her boot Mm. that revealed that he is not even Fire Lord Ozai's son. That his parents are in fact Ursa and Icom. And that was where we left off. Mm. So again, a huge bombshell that was dropped when this originally came out. Mm. And now we are kind of going directly into those consequences. Uh, first thing that we see, where it's the morning at camp. Azula wakes up to someone speaking to her and it's another vision of Ursa. Ursa tells her to give up this futile quest and that all her life, Azula has hidden behind a mask of intimidation 
and fear. Azula begins to lash out, charging up a lightning strike against her, saying, why must you fill my mind with such lies? The throne is my destiny. Isn't it? I mean, I have... Tears begin to form in Azula's eyes. This is such an intense opening. Azula, as we said, has been just like struggling ever since the end of Avatar The Last Airbender. And at Definitely. this moment, we're kind of seeing her question things. I don't know. How did you take this for an opening scene? Well, it definitely kind of gives us a bit more insight to Azula's character. And this is kind of the the very first time that we are actually seeing her question herself. She's always been probably one of the strongest characters in terms of her sense of direction, sense of where her path was going. And this is the first time she's starting to think maybe that's not right. Maybe what she thinks her destiny is isn't correct. So it's kind of upsetting a little bit just seeing this this young girl suddenly start to question everything that she was brought up to believe in this one moment of weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a really poignant start to part two, definitely. Yeah, and she's always been a character who knows herself. We have, Mm. like, and we see that even from a young age. She knows that she is an amazing firebender. She is the princess of the Fire Nation. So much of our deep dive that we did previously on Azula was talking about this identity that she has always crafted of herself, this Mm. image, and how she is always looking to aim for perfection. The scene that we see in her opening scene in Avatar Last Airbender is her lightning striking and a single hair out of place and how it's not good enough. She holds Mm. herself to a high standard, but again, she knows who she is and she knows what she has to strive for. Seeing her question it in this moment is, it's pretty earth shattering. But then we see that she wakes from her dream Her hand is on Katara as Sokka throws his boomerang at her and she stumbles away. It's then that she quickly realizes that the letter is gone and demands to know where Zuko is. Mm. It transitions now to this kind of scene. It's, I love the way that this is framed. Uh, Zuko and Aang are sitting together on a cliff as Aang reads the letter in disbelief. Uh, Zuko explains why so much of his life has made sense now with how Ozai has treated him. And it's interesting because Aang is concerned, but Zuko seems relieved. Yeah, and you totally get that. And I think it's something that from the promise and the search, and even in a few future books as well with Zuko, he's in this moment especially, he's happy seemingly about the possibility of not being part of the royal family of not being fire lord and for me it shows a a very defeatist attitude which he kind of gets every so often when things are kind of getting hard so being the fire lord at the moment has been hard for him it's been difficult his people have been turning against him things haven't gone the way they were meant to in his mind and now he has an out. He has a way to mm. get out from that mm. pressure. And he's lapping onto it straight away. There's no single question of it whatsoever. He's seen an out and he's running with it. Mm. And it just is, it's kind of, it's disappointing, but 
unsurprising to me i think yeah absolutely i mean and you have to think about too it's like what he has been through Mm. uh in terms of like up to this point like you said the events of the promise like there 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 are moments in the promise that he is like his cheeks are sunken in he looks ghastly and it looks like that so much of this role is taking such a significant toll on him physically Mm. and emotionally and again it's this journey of him kind of having this identity as the fire lord and how that is going to change and evolve and like you said him being presented with an out suddenly this massive responsibility all of this could potentially be gone and he Mm. could not face it but as we'll see kind of later on ang kind of is there to remind him not only the importance to being the fire lord for him but being the fire lord for everybody Mm. so azula approaches then flames in her hands fire bending toward them claiming that ursa must have told him to steal the letter out of her boot that she will never let her win oh azula every time every scene that we have with her i feel so much sadder for her like this idea that like the person that in our mind a mother is meant to love their child unconditionally is meant to make their child feel strong and happy and yet azula is adamant that her mother could never love her that her mother is going out of her way to make sure she can never be happy and it's just just really sad to see that she's just constantly mentioning that ursa is against her ursa is turning everyone against her Mm. and she's just really kind of sad really as well as the fact that no one seems to be picking up on this i know Mm. like guys she's talking about someone that's not there and you're not reacting to it like what guys (laughs) it, it is tragic but it's also this idea of what it's like how people deal with this type of sickness and Mm. how that has been traditionally dealt with even over our own history and that's kind of the that's the part that was left out of these books Mm. but i think we get enough to understand that it's still kind of a little bit in terms of like where we're at and where like mental health and psychological help treatment can be this is still kind of in the dark ages with it because there there there's no one who is there advocating the first time we see azula she's in a straight jacket yeah it's it's not she's not in a good place um Mm. but you know we get some context because we go into a flashback here it opens up with a frame that says it all Ursa and Zuko are in the Fire Nation Royal Palace Gardens. They're walking ahead. Ursa looks down at him with a smile, and Zuko's looking up at her laughing. And pointedly, Azula is strolling behind, looking to the side, expressionless. Mm. Then Joy comes over her as she ignites some nearby flowers, and Zuko calls her out. It's interesting because I Azula's look in this moment, 
while she is doing this is not one of malice or anger. It's wonder. And it's just like this idea of like, sometimes, especially like little kids, like they can do bad things that we as adults know are like objectively bad, but like they just may not have the emotional capacity and understanding to realize what they're doing is bad. (laughs) Yeah. No, totally. It's like when, um, like kids rip heads off of like Barbies and stuff like that just because they think it's funny. Or, or they do it to like a friend's Barbie because that's what they do to theirs and stuff like that. And just do like just really stupid childish stuff. You then learn by being taught by the parent and being given this lesson by them of you shouldn't do this and then telling them why they shouldn't. Whereas as we see with this moment when Ursa confronts Azula about what she did, there's no lesson. There's no teaching her why it's wrong. There's just yelling and punishment. There's no explanation. There's no teaching. It's just punishment. And I think that kind of shows a little bit of where Ursa, in a sense, fails as a parent in regards to Azula. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we really see that here in this moment as Zuko kind of tattletales uh, on Azula. She calls him out. She's like, You're tattletale. And she firebends his butt. (laughs) To which Ursa then sends Azula away and comforts Zuko. Yeah. There, and again, like you were saying, there's like, she's not taking time to empathize with Azula and trying to take that. She is immediately jumping to Zuko's rescue because again, she has this significantly deeper relationship with Zuko than she mm. does with Azula. Yeah. I think it's just really unfortunate. Like, this whole scene of them in this past and just everything about it. Um, I, I make a note of, like, that, that first scene where you mentioned before of seeing Zuko and Ursa having a really good time. And then I can't remember exactly because I haven't looked at the image in a while now, but the shading and colouring near where... Azula is it's a little bit dark in comparison to the lightness mm-hmm. with Zuko and Ursa and it just kind of gives this sense of n- neglect and kind of forgetting about Azula actually even being there she's left to the shadows she's left in the background she's forgettable she's she's not even there because they're in their own world because they're happy with each other mm. they're happy to forget that she's there mm. um and this is a thing that uh, it's something that people notice quite a lot in terms of kids who try to get the attention of their parents and it's something I notice quite a lot with these flashbacks that come up later as well including this one with Azula trying to get the attention of her parents in this sense so we I can't remember if we get a few more things from their past in general but we see her have this moment of kind of seeing Ursa and Zuko and then her reacting and doing this thing of burning the flowers and getting her mother's attention by doing something bad Mm. and it's kind of like she knows that the only way she's ever going to get her mother's attention now is by doing something bad Mm. and at least some attention is better than no attention 
which is kind of sad really as well um but the her quote actually about the reason why she burnt the flowers i think is really quite significant as well i can't remember the exact quote she says that i burned them because they weren't as pretty as the other ones are yes and that exactly that's something especially in terms of as we obviously being a girl as well and a girl within a very patriarchal royal family she knows already probably at this point that her mother doesn't love her or at least doesn't love her to the same extent that she loves Zuko so that is going to affect her sense of self-identity and self-worth as well so maybe Azula is seeing herself in that flower also that she's not pretty enough she's not lovable enough so she might as well go up in flames and destruction and kind of go from there Mm, and it's just something that yeah it's kind of like a symbolism like obviously girls are usually symbolized as like delicate flowers and stuff like that and flowers are always connected to this image of women so Mm. yeah it's just something that kind of popped into my head (laughs) no Uh, i I don't know if it makes any sense (laughs) no i i definitely can follow that too it's i think that's a that's definitely a valid interpretation of it too um because again i i think a lot of it too comes down to this i it comes down to the way that ursa views azula Mm. again she is we have to understand that azula and or sorry that ursa and ozai their relationship is not healthy Mm. it was forced and it was it was just out of Ursa's consent. And the really terrifying part about this is that we have to assume that, I mean, her having Azula was also not within her consent. Mm. And I think that it's also this stark reminder that every time that Ursa sees Azula, it's a representation of Ozai's complete dominance over her. And this just absolute villainy that he exudes. And the fact that she is like, that Azula is starting to act more like Ozai. And as we'll see later, he reinforces a lot of these behaviors. It just is making Ursa dig in her heels deeper of being there for Zuko and just casting aside Azula. Mm. So speaking of Ozai, we see him walking kind of... uh, over in the distance, he observes the scene of Ursa comforting Zuko. He continues on, and then he meets with uh, Vashir of the Yuyan archers. Uh, he gives him a mission to kill Ikem and to tell that dirt-stained commoner his demise was personally ordered by Prince Ozai of the Fire Nation. Vashir is saying, like, look, I can be discreet. I can make sure no one knows. But, like, Ozai is just like, no, I want you to tell him. And it's like, uh. whoa, dude. Uh. <laughs> the hubris. The villainy. <laughs> the small penis attitude. <laughs> Truly. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. There's actually, there's a fan art I've seen recently, which is literally that joke where it's, um, I think it's Iroh saying something that's like a, um, oh, I don't even remember what Iroh thing says. Is it's like I wonder something about size. He makes a joke about, and then um, Ursa responds with, "Trust me, that's not an issue there." 
or something like that. I can't even remember what. Oh, I've ruined the joke now with it, but it was a hilarious <laughs> fan art. And it's uh, all about Ozai basically having a small penis. And <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I'm going to see how, if I can find it and send it to you to put like on your, on your, um, on National Podcast Insta yes. um, page or something because yes. it was hilarious the first time I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> So we go back to the present. Uh, we are now experiencing a clash at the cliff. Zuko and Azula are fighting as Aang goes to check on Katara and Sokka, having no idea like if they're even okay because they just saw Azula charging out of the woods on fire. Her hands just like, it's not good. Azula in this moment is so crazed, furiously attacking her brother. And then Azula gets the upper hand for a moment. But then he takes it back, asking her, why, Azula? Why do a relationship have to be like this? Azula continues with her desperate ramblings as Zuko holds her by the collar by the edge of the cliff. She then calms and realizes something. She asks Zuko why he didn't burn the letter. Zuko's face clearly shows that he's not sure. Zuko just wants to continue on, to find their mother and to put this behind them. And Azula asks, Oh, Zuzu, are you actually on my side? Mm. This moment, I think, especially after seeing the history with Zuko and Azula in that moment and um, Zuko's relationship with his mother, and I think I'm just going to call Ursa his mother because I don't consider her to be Azula's mum. Like she, she doesn't seem to do anything or even enough for her. So you, I, I feel like this is something you kind of can't consider her to be a mother. She basically abandoned Azula to to Ozai, um, which I I consider quite unforgivable, really. Um, but to see the past and also everything that happened. We can see that Zuko put her through just as much, in a sense, really, like seeking sympathy from his mum, pointing out her faults to Ursa and, and all that sort of stuff. He put her through just as much as she put him through. Of course, obviously hers was on a larger scale, but he knows it, in a, I think, or at least I think he knows it. He knows that they were just as bad to each other, but he seems to kind of not want to admit that to himself mm. um and his eyes as well when she asks are you actually on my side and he he can't look at her he can't turn in her direction he can't answer that question because he knows he will never be on her side or in support of her which i think is really quite sad actually like they may have these moments but i it's probably unlikely that they will ever have that sibling relationship unless something really changes for the both of them yeah <clears throat> well i mean the, the truth is is that something's got to change with azula and that's mm. that's the fact of the matter it's like you know oh zuko is clearly he has been kind of putting out the olive branch here he is trying to restore dignity and kind of give azula the benefit of the doubt but at just every chance she has these breakdowns that lead to mm. her taking advantage of the situation and kind of just becoming this reckless figure in this. And it's, it's sad. So 
we are we go back to the forest ang and katara are putting out azula's flames and we get a great line from sokka as azula and zuko walk back sokka's like nature hates you <laughs> and zuko and azula calmly get on appa as they explain that they have come to an understanding we go back to the past we see dinner with ursa ozai azula and zuko azula talks about her firebending training and now her instructor was trying to show her restraint in proper form and that she subsequently set his pants on fire as soon as he was not looking <laughs> as retribution for being a dummy. O- Ozai then reinforces this view and says he'll have the teacher sent to the colonies. As soon as Zuko stands up for the teacher, Ozai shuts him down and proceeds to shame him on his own lack of progress in his training. Mm. And here we see the origin of Zuko's infamous line from the season one finale, talking to an unconscious Aang in the frozen wastes of the Northern Pole. Azula was born lucky. Zuko, you were lucky to be born. Ozai is spouting this hateful rhetoric as a way to reinforce Azula's sensibilities, harm Ursa, and deflate Zuko. It is such a psychopath manipulative move for him to be doing this. And it's absolutely, there's just, there are so many things that Ozai just does in only three pages that are just, it explains everything as to why Azula is the way she is as to why uh, he is a horrible person, as to why Zuko has always just felt terrified of his own father. Yeah. That's just... Ugh. it's No, it's, it's despicable. Just, just seeing that on all sides as well, seeing what his actions will lead Azula to becoming. We'll see what happens to Zuko and how he ends up, how he is in book one. Um, and then also everything that happens with Ursa later on as well like in just that one scene we're seeing the seeds for everything that happens in future and so Ozai is called away from the dinner table Uh, a messenger says that there's news from a Yuyan archer Ozai meets with Vashir who is looking uh, pretty rough and he says that he couldn't find Ikem but pursued him into the woods where he was assaulted by the trees, the animals, and the insects. Ozai during this, as he is kind of telling this story, it's this like amazing perspective uh, illustration that we are seeing this like low angle shot of Ozai looking down at Vashir menacingly and just with just anger. But then Mm. Ozai comforts him before telling him to go to the Pohuai stronghold and to give Colonel Shainu his resignation because he doesn't belong as a Yuyan archer anymore because those are only the best of the best. Wow. It's, um... <laughs> the moment you see him start to comfort Vashir, you're kind of like, oh, oh no. This, <laughs> this does not bode well. The moment someone you know is evil is being kind the nerve endings are unlit and you start to think either this guy's about to die 
or something even worse is about to happen. Um, and I think what's interesting is that this is noted in the um, library edition for Bashir. And I didn't know this until I saw it in the library edition, actually. Um, so Bashir is actually a member of the Rough Rhinos Rhino. that we meet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we meet them in book one and book two as well, I think, don't we? Yep. Um, and now we basically have the story of how he ends up with the Rough Rhinos. He's forced to be removed from... Um, I've already f- uh, the U the Yu Yan arches. Yes. I can never pronounce. There we yeah. go. Okay, cool. Um, he's forced to leave them. Something that, from the sounds of it, the moment you become a Yu Yan archer, you are a Yu Yan archer until you retire. That's what those tattoos are meant to symbolize. So we've now got that the backstory of of Vashir for when we meet him in the series, yeah. or, or at least why. I don't know why I tried to repeat the same thing in a different f- sentence <laughs> structuring. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get you though. I mean, it, and it's interesting. Again, it's it's connecting these pieces of what we know from the series, and it is this really cool way to suddenly take a character that was just kind of this one-off like character that uh, we saw only a, f- a handful of times, but give him this deeper connection to this world, and it's just it's it's incredibly interesting uh i i haven't seen that episode in a while i'd be interested to kind of or those episodes in a while i'd be interested to revisit them now kind of looking at it through this new lens which is the great part about the comics it enables you to go back to the series i think and really examine different scenes and different character growths with a a whole new frame of reference and so uh, Ozai storms back inside. He dismisses the servants attending to Ursa, who is alone, and immediately gets incredibly aggressive with her, mm. citing their marriage as a point where she had to leave her life behind. He calls her out for reaching out to Ikem, and that evidence of her treason lives under this very roof. And she even says, like, just like, just stop, Ozai. Just why why are you doing this? You have nothing to gain from this. And then he says, but I am a merciful man. I will allow the child to live despite the lowliness of his true heritage. Ikem, however, Ikem richly deserved his punishment. He tells Ursa that he had him killed as she looks on in shock, tears in her eyes. Another prime example of Ozai being an absolute psychopath, manipulating emotions, and inflicting pain prefaced by some twisted sense of righteousness or kind-heartedness. Mm. Like you were saying, as soon as like a, a villain starts acting kind, you know that there's something wrong. But Ozai has this way of just because and it's and it's interesting because this was always mm. when Ozai was first revealed in book three. I remember one of the biggest surprises that we all had and that I know I personally had was that we had always seen Ozai as this silhouette amidst yeah. flames, roaring flames from his mouth 
And you're thinking like, this is a monster. This is like this grisly fire Lord who is this absolute, just like terror of a person. But then you see him and he's this like good looking, handsome man who at times can almost look like he has a kind face about him. Yeah, no, I noticed that as well. Like he, his face just comes across as really quite soft looking. Like he's the sort of person that you'd pass in the street. And you think you'd think he, he'd be like a nice guy, the sort of person who'd maybe like hold a door open for for people to walk through or something like that. Like he has that kind of face, which is all kind of levels of terrifying. He's kind of like Ted Bundy isn't he yeah yeah yeah. oh my god he he is the ted bundy of the avatar world my goodness oh my god wow oh my goodness yeah oh Uh. i feel like i'm gonna have to call him that now (laughs) um so you know we we go back to the present here after this whole flashback was incredible because it just was connecting so many dots to moments from the series expanding mm. on these moments and giving us an even even greater sense of context. That's the strength of this part as a whole. And we'll get into this more and more as we see more of the flashbacks, but it really dives into these moments that have kind of been referenced and hold significance to these characters. But now we get to find out why we get to mm. see, we get to peek behind the curtain and we get to understand how damaging and sinister it really is. And yeah. again, how horrible of a person Ozai is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we go back to the present and the gang prepares to go incognito as they approach a bustling Hira. They quickly discover as they are all kind of assuming their disguises that a play is being put on and not just any play, but love amongst the dragons two spirits clash one apparently having been turned to a mortal for some time who strikes down the water spirit wearing a mask very similar to the blue spirit Mm, sutara fans are quivering (laughs) in their boots at this moment like oh my god his mask is water tribe related (laughs) it all connects they were meant to be (laughs) So Zuko and Azula have a fond moment as they recall seeing the Ember Island players perform this when they were younger and how the two of them used to reenact the scene that they just witnessed on the beach. Zuko reveals that he was always forced to uh, play the dark water spirit and Azula is just like, well, I clearly made a better dragon emperor. <laughs> um and it's it this is like such a touching moment. It's like we get to see mm. like Zuko and Azula like they are sharing a good memory. Mm. Which is insane. Yeah. And, and again, we we kind of see that in the beach as well. That seemingly the only kind of good memories that they had were there on Ember Island. Mm. And it's the reason why that episode is the beach is just filled with the emotional weight that it does because it is the one place that Zuko and Azula actually have a shared, like, good memory of each other with everything. Yeah. Like, there's positive association with it for both of them. Oh, totally. 
it just makes me think of that scene where she goes to the house um to see him there like she's clearly going there out of a sense of care for him as well so having this moment between them it shows that there is definitely care for each other there but there's just there's still just so much hurt at the same time so they'll have these moments but they'll they'll go back to hurting each other or causing problems with each other as seen in in the very next moment where she threatens to harm the old man for shushing her which admittedly <laughs> when people shush you sometimes it is pretty annoying so i can see where she's coming from <laughs> yes um so as uh, Zuko calms Azula before she blows a gasket here, uh, we hear the final lines of the play. Though I was trapped in the body of a mortal, you willingly gave me your heart. I cannot help but give you mine in return. Only, and then the woman responds, only with your glory, hidden in false form, could you finally recognize my devotion. The play concludes, and it's. It, I always love that when we get to see some uh, either form of literature or culture or art in a given uh, kind of like fantasy world. Because again, mm. I think we discussed this last time is that it it is a way to inform the reader or the viewer of what this world is like so much of the culture and society is defined by the art that is kind of put out from it. And again, it gives this whole depth to the blue spirit though. I mean, Zutara jokes aside, like the idea of everyone, like that there were wanted posters for the blue spirit that it was called the blue spirit. It is like this, like, Oh my God, like it is the figure from, it, it was essentially like the equivalent of like if someone was putting up wanted posters for like like the chupacabra. Oh, <laughs> Your, yours is better. <laughs> but that's everyone so going good. after Adina Menzel's. Like, oh my god! No, that is so much better than chupacabra. But I absolutely love that we went in such different places. <laughs> Yes, very much like, uh, um, very much like Idina Menzel in, uh, well, it could be both in Wicked or even in Frozen. I mean, it's this idea of like either it's like the crazy mad ice queen in Frozen or the Wicked Witch of the West in uh, Wicked. And it's just mm. this idea of like suddenly it's just like, oh, oh, wow, this is real. Like, this isn't just like a myth. Like, this thing, this spirit, this evil is out there. And mm. it's deeply embedded in the kind of story and culture of like this given kingdom or country. It's just, I love mm. it. It's so cool. No, totally. I think what's interesting with it as well, with it being like um, the spirit being trapped in a mortal body, from what we see in Legend of Korra and even the comics for Legend of Korra as well, with the fact that the spirit world's obviously mixed with the mortal world now as well, but obviously in the past they were kind of joined together um, before being closed up, this story sounds like it could be possibly tied into that history. And obviously most plays are usually based on some sort of historical context and form, or at least 
an interpretation of it. So having this idea of a spirit being trapped in a mortal body kind of ties into maybe like um, the story of one where his friend is obviously cursed by a spirit so they're kind of living both in a mortal and spirit form um, it's something I just um, just thought about that it kind of ties in a little bit to Legend of Korra now as well with this spiritual mortal connection mm. no that's a great point I, it, it is really interesting because like so much of the role of the spirits in how they are viewed uh, by each nation and I think especially the Fire Nation in particular uh, there's mm. I mean because we saw especially with like the blue uh, not with the blue spirit but yes the blue spirit but also the painted lady um, oh, of course. and like it, just this idea of uh, the way that spirits uh, can play such a like hidden in plain sight type of role Mm. and it just it elevates kind of this mysticism in a way that like i think a lot of you would see like in traditional japan or china uh in japan with like shintoism how like there are spirits and like uh there are spirits pretty much in everything and that they can kind mm. of manifest in different ways is that it's like they could be anything and everything and always kind of like keeping you on on your toes Oh my god, Pocahontas was right. It's in every rock and tree and creature. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, as the play concludes, uh, they begin to ask around about Ursa when a man wearing the blue spirit mask approaches. He reveals himself to be Norin, the director of the troupe, and he ushers them away from the crowd. And then we're at Norin and Noriko's house, his wife. Angie and Katara sit with Noriko who reveals that they have been married for five years. Anka Katara are like, oh, that's nice. And they're like looking at each other. And then Noriko's just like, or Noriko, 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 I apologize for butchering things. Uh, <laughs> she says, it is. But you two are a little young to be thinking about marriage, aren't you? <laughs> like their reactions are so priceless. Like Katara immediately like just looks down and is blushing, and like Ang is just like, oh well, um, it's <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Oh my god, I loved it. But meanwhile, in the background, uh, a little girl named uh, Kiyi is uh, she approaches Zuko and Azula and asks, "You want to meet my doll?" And Zuko's like, "Of course." And Azula's like, no. <laughs> it's so it's so funny. <laughs> God, I love it so much. Uh, Zuko proceeds to comment on the doll's hair, which is looking pretty ragged. <laughs> uh, saying that Azula did things like that with her dolls. And Azula's like, that's right. Only I didn't give my dolls haircuts. I gave them head cuts. <laughs> Would you like me to show you? And she's just like, uh, no. <laughs> In which Norin enters and asks Kiyi if she's being a, a like hospitable to their guests. And she's just, and she. this is one of my favorite lines <laughs> from this entire part. It's like, are you being hospitable to our guests? And she's just like, I'm trying. <laughs> it's like, girl, for real. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, she is trying so hard. Admittedly, I think this is like the thing that you were mentioning um, last time. Like, this is like Azula's sort of like cheeky side sort of thing. Like, you're trying to 
mess about with a kid for for like fun it's like i do it i'm terrible with kids so i'm i I would be like a zula i would make these really bad jokes and not realize i'm probably gonna make this kid cry and then be really (laughs) surprised and kind of like oh my god i've made a kid cry and then like run away because i've made a child cry and like that's like like a crime basically to make a child cry (laughs) but oh my god no that line was fantastic it's like i'm trying and i'm like yeah, that's fair. I mean, you got to try really hard with Azula. She's a, she's a tough nut to crack, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Um, so Sokka apparently has uh, crafted a cover for them that they are drama historians. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. He's just like, he's like, yeah, I just opened my mouth and it came out. And there we go. <laughs> He is so, a genius, that boy. Oh my goodness. Uh, so Norin begins to launch into the story of Ursa as the most famous member, but not necessarily because of her acting, but because how she was taken away. Zuko asks then about Ikem, and they say that he went to the Forgetful Valley years ago, and that Ursa had at one point returned and gone there as well. At least as the rumors went. Oh. Uh, Noriko comments how it's just like, oh, it's an awfully romantic story. And it's, uh, it's a nice little bit of foreshadowing. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the gang decides to depart. Um, and Azula says how she resisted her temptation to burn the house to the ground. Uh, and uh, Katara is just like, what? Why? <laughs> and Azula says that their charade disgusted her. Nobody's that happy. Katara says, well, Ang and I are that happy. And Azula's like, yeah, it's because you're both idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, uh, and- she, she's not wrong. <laughs> And the thing is, it's like, yes, again, cheeky, but there's a deeper, darker side to this. Yeah. Azula cannot even recognize true happiness when she sees it. She sees it as a lie. And I I just, I think it's so much of that is like what Ozai has reinforced and shown her because i think that if anything he has always shown that people who are happy that people are living their lives like that they are weak because they are not powerful yeah and i think it's really important and like what you said with ozai just considering the reality of the royal family like her mother was not happy to be there she was not willingly there she and her um and her father were clearly not happy and they had to keep up this charade of a happy marriage for the people like it's not surprising that she considers most things like that to be a charade or a lie because that's all she's grown up with she's grown up with a lie from birth so it kind of it makes sense in a really sad way that she doesn't believe that anyone could truly love or be truly happy because she's never seen it yeah if you don't have that example in your life then your norm is what you see Mm. uh that's that's just like the what you what you or what you have grown up with that becomes your norm 
And yeah. that's what you accept as truth until you see otherwise. And like you're saying, being part of the royal family, you are isolated from everyone. You do mm-hmm. not see other families in the same way that you would like living in a smaller village. Um, yeah. It's, it's crazy. And it's just, again, it's these really sad consequences of Azula being in the position that she's in that it it's this pressure cooker to turn her into this person that she is suffering this horrible, horrible just slew of mental health problems. Mm. So Zuko and Aang chat and Zuko reveals that Azula has the letter still and that they need to just focus on figuring everything else out, including where and who he is supposed to be. Aang in this moment is rightfully concerned. Zuko again seems at ease with all of this, the possibility that his claim to the throne could be upended, but Aang is Aang is real with him here. And this is I think a great example of this uh, amazing friendship and relationship that Aang and Zuko have. And I think that mm-hmm. why they are both so important to each other and for each other. Because Aang is like, look, dude, you represent an era of love and peace. And he says, your fire lord, it's not just your fire lord for you, your fire lord for all of us. Mm-hmm. Reminding Zuko of his greater responsibility. And I, I but again, it's this, it's it's insane because it's this idea of like you like this is something that is going to affect generations to come after what they just barely got away like with this bullet that they dodged in the promise with uh, ang almost having to fulfill this promise to kill zuko if he ever became like his father like it, now they get to this point where zuko is talking about like <laughs> i may not be this fire lord that i thought i was and Aang is like, oh, whoa, dude, like you, you have to see what's going on here. You have to see what mm. this could completely destroy. And you have to think about this. And I think it's interesting because, again, we saw from the very beginning of this comic, it is so much of Zuko just uh, creating this kind of he has tunnel vision about this idea of restoring dignity to his family and finding his mother. And yeah. it, give, it gives him focus, but I think it's also, it's blinding him, I think, to a lot of the truth and reality of the consequences of what he could be doing here. Yeah. And it's like what you say after that, he, after everything that Aang says, he kind of, he recognizes what Aang is saying, but he clearly doesn't want to hear it right now. He's He's, like you said, he's got such tunnel vision of at current finding his mother restoring dignity but also at the possibility that all this responsibility that he both wants but just kind of can't handle there's the chance that it may no longer exist for him so he's just focusing on that on the possibility of being free and yeah it's it's just kind of sad a little bit really that he's just so desperate to kind of be able to take a step away from that family maybe even to be able to have the opportunity to 
not restore the dignity of Ozai and Azula by saying, well, they're not really my family because Ikem's my dad and yeah, Azula would technically still be my my half-sister because of my mother, but I can step away from it because there's a difference now. Mm. I, I don't know, but I think it's it's an interesting thing that he's just trying to find a way out in every regard. Yeah, absolutely. And and keeping it real with him, be like, dude, you mm. can't you can't do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we go to another flashback. Oof. And here we see another scene from the original series where Azuka mm. where Azula tells Zuko that Ozai is going to kill him. Dad's going to kill you. <laughs> Ursa overhears a bit and takes Azula away. Whereas in Avatar, we saw Zuko continue to utter the line, Azula always lies. Azula always lies. This time, we see Ursa and Azula. Azula tells Ursa about Azulan's command that... Ozai will need to kill his own firstborn to make him understand the pain that mm. Iroh has gone through for losing Luten and asking yeah. and having the gall to ask for the throne. So Ursa immediately goes to Ozai after hearing this. And here again, we see Ozai saying how he is a merciful man, saying that he'll wait to kill Zuko in his sleep. And that he won't feel a thing. In this moment, Ursa does not mess around. She just says, listen carefully. And she makes him an offer that she knows he cannot refuse. She tells him that she knows how to make a colorless and odorless poison that will kill someone quietly as if they'd fallen asleep. She gives Ozai this to do whatever he wants with it in exchange for Zuko's life. She knows that he wants the throne. Mm. She is giving him the way to do that. Ozai accepts, but on one condition. She must leave, alone, and leaving the children as collateral. Even saying, like, this is again, I think it's showing, like, that Ozai is evil, but he's not stupid because he's like, look, if you stick around, it's only going to be a matter of time until there is another odorless, colorless poison that suddenly shows up somewhere else because he also recognizes that the throne would fall to Zuko. Yeah. He's seeing that all like in a flash in this moment too. And he wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm. And so we get this beautiful page of Ursa clipping the leaves from a flower, making the poison. And then she hands it off to Ozai. She kisses Azula goodbye and bids Zuko farewell. And one of the most famous scenes from Zuko alone, never forget who you are. Mm. It is such a poignant moment, but I think for me this shows a much darker side to Ursa than we would have expected. Like, she has very clearly considered and planned, possibly even, to murder Ozai. 
and you know justifiably like he is obviously he is a terrible person but to have this sort of murderous and vindictive attitude and action that she clearly may have considered to take at some point in the future kind of shows that Azula didn't get all of those perceived negative traits from her father Mm. but possibly also got them from Ursa as well um the only other thing that I noticed from this is just another thing that frustrates me about Ursa and Azula's relationship is that she actually speaks and bids farewell to Zuko whereas with Azula she leaves without a word really Mm. and I think that just shows that yeah Zuko did wake up technically but she stuck around to give him these final words to have that final moment with him and once again it just shows that she has this preference and more love for him than she does for Azula and it's kind of I I suppose it's a good thing that Azula probably never knew that that happened and unless maybe she did but I guess we haven't seen a scene of Zuko mentioning it or not but if she doesn't know I'm kind of glad that she doesn't because to know that her mother didn't even consider saying goodbye to her would probably be the final like the final final straw I think Mm. absolutely I, I, I love again it's just showing that characters are much more complex and Mm. Ursa especially that and I think what it really echoes and I think it's a beautiful way to kind of show that this is who Ursa is is that in the episode Zuko alone there's the moment of the turtle ducks Zuko says to Ursa do you want to see how Azula feeds the turtle ducks he throws the bread at them and then the mother turtle duck comes in and bites him. And Ursa takes this moment and she says, you have to remember, Zuko, if you ever come after someone's baby, or I I can't remember the exact term, but basically she's saying, you come after the the kids and the mother is going to come and get you. Mm. It is showing that Ursa is willing to do anything and everything to protect Zuko. Yeah. And I, I think that, yes, she is a complex character, but I think I understand completely, too, because... Oh, totally. You know, the thing is, is she also understands that Zuko, along with her, had no choice to be born into this. Because mm. she was pregnant with Zuko, did not know, and then had Zuko... And suddenly, here is a kid who should have, by all intents and purposes in her mind, should have had the opportunity to grow up in Hira, live a different life. But that was not the case. Mm. Uh, it's definitely, it's it's sad to think. And, but the deal that Ozai makes, I think, is the most interesting part. Because he says that they, they're the the kids the collateral really no not the collateral that's not what I mean is that the word I mean I think it is I don't know okay it is thank you for confirming um (laughs) so him having the kids is his collateral but he says that they will be safe like he won't 
hurt them, he won't do anything, they'll be safe here. But obviously we know that that's not true. He does hurt Zuko. He he burns mm, his face. Obviously mm-hmm. that's the most memorable thing about him. So it brings in this question of if that was the deal that if he hurts them, then technically their deal is off. Why didn't Ursa come back? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the thing is, is that she, there was no, there's no way. This was a total, it, she was making this bargain to save Zuko's life. And I think that it's this idea that Ozai knows that no matter what, he has the upper hand. He has everything to gain and nothing to lose from this. Yeah. So here we see what Ozai meant in Day of Black Sun when he said, your mother did vicious, treasonous things that night. And it's interesting because we see a parallel between Zuko and Azula uh, about how Ozai has the one condition about Ursa's plan and how Azula has the one condition about Zuko's plan. And it's just, ah. it's it's really interesting that we get to see kind of that parallel. And it's, I think it's just, it's great writing from Jean Luen Yang to kind of like round that out in that way. Mm. I hadn't thought of that at all. You know, that's, that's, that's a really good point, actually. Mm. So we go back to the present and the gang heads to the Forgetful Valley, a forest with strange imagery and a foreboding presence. We get a great moment with Aang and he's just like, so this must be it forgetful valley and Sokka's like how do you know your special avatar powers and Aang's like no it says so on the sign (laughs) (laughs) and it's like it's such a great comedic beat that we would absolutely see in the show and I love that they captured that it's so good (laughs) oh my gosh so uh, the path kind of ends, but then Azula is just like, for a firebender, there is always a path. And she just ignites the forest. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's just like, oh my God, Azula, why? <laughs> <laughs> then Aang starts to make his like weird faces again. I love what Katara is just like, oh, sweetie, not the faces again. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like Katara, he can't help it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Sokka is the one to make the connection, pointing out the patterns in the forest, uh, noting how on the trees, on the animals, everywhere around them are faces. Aang then chases after a flutter bat that Sokka has pointed out in true Aang fashion. He's like, I think we were meant to be friends. <laughs> oh, and Aang. The bat then leads Aang to a still pool of water abnormally still. Aang notes how it reminds him of Twee and La's pool in the Northern Water Tribe, already adding to its spiritual significance. Mm. Aang tells everyone, look guys, this is a very spiritual place. Let's all be real respectful. And then immediately, Azula sees a reflection of Ursa in the water and proceeds to electrocute it (laughs) and (laughs) she continues with her delusions that ursa led them here to feed her more lies Mm. and it's in this moment it's this moment finally that katara has had enough 
she prepares mm. a massive pool of water as she is just saying like look we we she is clearly too dangerous Suko this is too much we cannot keep doing this and suddenly there are flower throwing stars that come flying towards them and the gang is suddenly under attack vines are reaching out towards them as Katara pieces together that someone is waterbending the plants, just like in the swamp. We see in this fight, Azula saves Sokka, and he's like, thanks, I guess? And she's just like, the more peasants I have fighting with me, the better chance we can get out of this nightmare. (laughs) Oh, I love it. She does something nice, and she's like, oh, God, no. They have to believe that I am am the goddess of evil and destruction no i only kept you around to keep me safe not because i want to make sure everyone's okay because i truly do care about people and i want to make sure everyone is okay in the world <laughs> that's her entire monologue <laughs> so then on page 58 we get this beautiful frame of katara waterbending the leaves and vines away we see like multiple frames of her within the frame. And then she faces ahead, confident, looking forward. Whoever you are, you're not the only one who can water bend. Show yourself. Uh, oh, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. I, uh, amazing Katara moment here. Yeah. Uh, I've got to say though, I, I did put this into my notes because I'm a terrible human being. The moment I saw that little, <laughs> the little art bit of her like drawing the the leaves and the vines around her, the first thing that popped in my head was just leaves from the vines no. falling so slow, <laughs> and I was like, I just want to die inside now. <laughs> oh, 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 oh my god! Uh. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh. That's all I could think. <laughs> So then out of the woods comes an old woman leading a man wearing a mask, both of them wearing water tribe clothes. This scene, as uh, we kind of see Aang being led by the Flutterbat, I thought was very reminiscent of many scenes with spirits where they kind of lead Mm. the way while not seeming to. Um, and I mean, it, it was a great little fight and Katara's water bending move is just top notch. It's one of my favorite bending representations that they have done in this book. Oh, totally. It was just gorgeous. So then we go again to the past into a flashback. We see Ursa return to Hira in the past and she finds out that her mother and father have died. The next frame is her sitting alone on the stage. And, God, this is tragic on so many levels. Yeah. Just returning, not even knowing, like, you, your parents aren't alive, but then knowing that you couldn't even be there for their funeral. Mm. That you couldn't say goodbye. And it's just, she is left alone with her grief in this moment. Yeah, that's just such a horrible thing that she's been so cut off from the real world so to speak that she just has no idea what's been 
been going on to suddenly get that heartbreaking news is just you really feel for her in that moment definitely she's then approached by Norin who offers to buy her breakfast saying that sitting by herself in front of an empty stage seems like a terrible way to start the day and finally Ursa gets (laughs) a little bit (laughs) of just good feels (laughs) yeah we go back to the present and we see that Misu, the water tribe woman, talks about how the pool, along with the three others in the valley, must remain undisturbed. And that her and her brother Rafa have been there for a long time. Mm. She then launches into a story about her brother, who always liked to steal things, but returned them. But then how he got into serious trouble one day. When Misu find, found him on the ice, his face horribly disfigured. No one could do anything to help him. So Misu studied and learned about a powerful spirit who could give people new faces. She decided to take the matter into her own hands. She had to learn how to fight on her own, a reminiscent factor of the northern tribe's tradition of not allowing women to fight something that Katara points out Mm. and that they've been searching for the spirit ever since. It's such a short little scene, but it's beautiful because she is sacrificing her own life to save her brothers. This moment is juxtaposed with frames of Sokka and Katara and then Azula and Zuko. Sokka and Katara looking at each other fondly, Azula and Zuko looking opposite directions and distant. This is where we see Azula's greatest flaw and her Mm. ultimate downfall as a character. It's her lack of empathy. Yeah. She she asks where Ursa is and that their mission is important, showing complete disregard to Misu and Rafa's plight. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can definitely see the lack of empathy there. Um, and I think it's it's an, an unfortunate side of her upbringing that, that she just has no sense of empathy. And as we brought up, obviously, last time as well, um, Tim X in Hello Future Me's um, Psychology of Azula video kind of really talks about that lack of empathy. My thing for me, I, I'm like full on team Azula this entire episode at the moment. Oh my gosh. For me, I kind of can't be too mad about that moment of her just kind of focusing on this mission. Just because it's, it's something that the gang are very bad at doing. They have a goal. They get sidetracked more often than not to the point that the goal gets pushed further and further and further back that it kind of ends up messing with their schedule. Like when they were going to find a way to help Aang and Katara also as well learn waterbending. It took an entire book (laughs) for them to be able to get to where they were meant to be going. Um, And it's it's not a big issue, of course, but um, I can kind of see what she means in that they do have this mission they have an an important mission for both her and Zuko in that they need to find their mother they need to find out what happened for her obviously it's for different reasons it's to find out 
why Ursa has been doing these things to her. But as a whole, it is all about reuniting a family in a sense. So she's just, she's kind of like Zuko in this moment. She's very one goal orientated. She has tunnel vision for this one thing. So everything else just kind of comes as a distant second. Mm. Well, we clearly see what type of like RPG gamers Aang and the gang would be versus Azula and Zuko. Aang and the gang are like, ooh, like side quest, side quest, side quest. I guess I'll get to the main quest when I can. Azula and Zuko are like, I will play nothing but the main quest line. I must fulfill it. I must find out what the story is. <laughs> but they're like, totally. but but this this villager, like this villager needs our help rounding up their cow that's 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 gone missing. We must we must go and help them. <laughs> so Oh my god. One hundred percent. I don't think I'd ever want to play an RPG game with the main gang because it would just never end. It would it would go on forever. <laughs> they would not be the people. They would be the people who would play The Witcher Three and just never finish the game because they would just play side quests all day. And then by the time they actually did the main level, they're like, "All right, we're way overpowered for this. I guess we'll <laughs> just do it." <laughs> Admittedly, whoever finishes Witcher 3, that is the question here. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Misu tells them that the wolf spirit is the key. That whichever pool he drinks from, there this mysterious spirit appears. But that they're always at the wrong pool. Aang decides to meditate and enter the spirit world. And Azula loses her patience. Mm. She's like, stop with these side quests. <laughs> she, But in this moment, she's plagued by her delusions once again. Thinking that Misu and Rafa, as she calls them, the vagrants, were sent to slow her down. Mm. And then she goes after them, preparing to kill them with lightning. Killing someone who is innocently standing by. Mm. Again, Azula needs help. 100%. And it's just, it's this thing that we've brought this up a few times in terms of like the clear lack of mental health support in this current time period, like matching with ours. Just no one is ever going to give her the help that she needs. And I think that's, that's going to be the unfortunate thing here is that she's going to continue to continue to fall down this spiral, getting worse and worse, becoming more dangerous and just terrifying and worrying about how out of control she can get just because no one's going to take the time to help her figure it out like the whole gang has been hearing her talking about this woman that they don't see and reacting to someone apparently talking to her but obviously they don't hear anything but they just kind of aren't reacting to it so I think it's just the unfortunate side of things. But then also just Azula is also... Um, <laughs> uh, she's, she was like that in the beginning anyway. Uh, it's just a, a little bit... It's just kind of timesing it by a thousand at this point in terms of her um, inability to know when it is the right time to shoot someone with lightning and when it is <laughs> the wrong time. Yes. The right time <laughs> is when someone needs a fire. <laughs> and then you just 
Because someone wants to roast marshmallows. <laughs> yes. Read read the room. Is it time for a bonfire? Yes. Okay. Shoot lightning. Is it not? Then no. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have marshmallows? Then it's not the time. <laughs> it's not the time for lightning. Uh, so the final scene that we get here in this part two is Aang entering the spirit world. He finds the Flutterbat again who beckons him to hop aboard that he will show him what he is looking to see. Aang gets a bird's eye view of the forest, seeing the three bodies of water and soon the wolf spirit. Aang touches down and addresses it and says, now that you see I can cross over to the spirit world too, you must feel a little embarrassed about puking moth wasps at me and my friends. But don't worry, I don't hold grudges. (laughs) Oh, Aang, you adorable little dumbass. (laughs) Such a little shit in that moment. (laughs) Yeah. So then Aang tries to get the wolf to go to a different pool uh, where clearly his friends are. And he hitches a ride on the wolf. Then soon after, a voice booms out. Who dares ride my wolf as if she were some common beast of burden? Uh, My name is Aang. I'm the Avatar. (laughs) Who are you? I am the Mother of Faces. We see a massive spirit, her body twisting wooden roots with four faces with no eyes at their head, ethereal faces floating around her. She's massive, she is incredible, and she is one of the coolest spirits that we have seen. 100%. Honestly, I, this is totally something that just popped into my head when she when he said she's massive and she's incredible. I just kind of wanted to go, and she is thick with a C. <laughs> mother of face is so thick <laughs> i feel like she'd appreciate such a compliment she's um she's clearly pretty pretty chill would you say would you say that she is woke is the mother of faces woke <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yes she is 100 percent. oh no she's oak <laughs> Wow. Oh, man. I'm here a week. I'm here a week. <laughs> Snaps. Snaps for days. <laughs> uh, so, final thoughts on this final scene before we get into overall final thoughts. Okay. Other than um, the mother of faces being thick and oak, just the. <laughs> I'm never going to get over that joke now. That was the best joke I've ever told. Um <laughs> Um, the the image, the seriously, the artwork and imagery of the Mother of Faces is amazing. Like the full page spread of that image is just like breathtakingly gorgeous. And I think just I th- it's kind of one of the half of the things that I miss about the old art style in comparison to like Imbalance. It's just the detail that you can get from it and just the the coloring and just the visual um whereas you kind of get a little bit of that with imbalance but just not as as much um yeah which is unfortunate but like we'll see how it goes in future because obviously we haven't had spirits with imbalance either so we'll see how it looks for spirits in future but just seeing this it's just one of those things i'm just like wow it's just 
incredible artwork but this whole spiritual journey was <laughs> oh my god ang is is so dumb sometimes i'm like <laughs> his whole thing with the spirit and this is considering he's like the avatar and an airbender so he's meant to be like mr spiritual he doesn't seem to understand how to deal with spirits or um how to communicate with spirits <laughs> he kind of got he's like a go with the flow he's oh my god he's karuk no he cannot be karuk Karuk is the worst avatar of all time. He will not be a go with the flow kind of avatar. <laughs> <laughs> but his reactions, like with um, Heibai in um, book one, he kind of, he, even then he was kind of just going with the flow, kind of instinctive sort of thing that just did not work whatsoever. And it took him a while to figure out how to actually interact correctly with Heibai. Mm, and mm-hmm. in this case as well, he clearly does not know what he's doing. Like he made so many mistakes in in that bit leading up to being with the mother of faces that it's just kind of like dude read a scroll about some spirits and learn what what you should and shouldn't do and i'm gonna guess <laughs> that riding on the back of a spirit is is not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> So yeah, I I love I loved your point too about like how we get this full page spread. Um, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, illustration. It's such a great addition to this kind of pantheon of uh, kind of major spirits that we see in the Avatar mythos. Um, I and it's just like you can tell that there is a reverence to her power that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this full page is truly dedicated towards. And as we see what happens in part three, there's a reason for it. Um, oh yeah. And yeah, I just, I, I loved it. So let's, uh, let's get final thoughts on part two of the search. Oh, okay. Well, hashtag team Azula for life. Azula <laughs> is my life. I love her so much. Um, and I think what's really interesting about this this part, other than me clearly being the biggest fangirl of Azula of all time, oh my goodness, this this part and kind of tying it with the first part and obviously what will then happen in part three as well, her story becomes so much more tragic and devastating the more we see of the past, the present and kind of this expectation of probably what will happen to her in the future because in all likelihood she she doesn't have a future there's no feasible way at current that we could probably see of her actually living a life that would make her happy and i think that's just really quite sad that this is a 14 year old girl without the possibility of quote unquote a happy ending and it's just really quite sad in in a way that we're kind of seeing that in in this in this part particularly especially reinforced how she can't even recognize true happiness when she sees it oh totally oh my god that's just so sad she just doesn't understand the concept of happiness and um 
this is a thing actually that I've been seeing a lot popping up on like like avatar f- um Facebook groups and stuff like that all the time um is that quote from May where she says you know I love Zuko more than I fear you and so many people have been comparing that to the dynamic between Ursa and Azula and saying that the reason why that line of I love Zuko more than I fear you really hurts Azula and kind of leads to her breakdown is because that's exactly how she thought her mother viewed her whoa yeah that's amazing I know it's just it's been popping up everywhere and it's, it's when reading this part I was like that's actually so true and you can see that with every interaction like she knew her mother would never love her or could never love her in the way that she loved Suko. So, like her father, she hoped for her mother to fear her instead, so she would at least feel something towards her, that her mother would have some kind of feeling towards her, even if it wasn't love, because she didn't believe her mother could love her. But even with this knowledge that she wanted to make her mother fear her the most, so her mother would have a strong feeling for her, she knew that she would still love Zuko more than she would ever feel anything towards her. And it's just devastating to think of that that is more than anything exactly what she was thinking of. And it's wow. just, yeah. I mean, that explains why, you know, she is like having these delusions of like why Ursa got to May and Ty Lee. Like, mm. it's, it's like echoing these words that. Azula echoing these perceptions that Azula has seen uh, that you know of that her mother has of her that's wild that is such Mm. a great breakdown oh my god I'm so glad you brought (laughs) that up that's so cool Uh, so I I, I absolutely agree that this was this was uh, this was so interesting to see uh, such a deeper dive uh, into Azula it was tragic but we got to peel back more of the layers of this past these Mm. moments from Avatar the Last Airbender and getting more context for them it just it really gave so much substance to what we knew about the show in these moments but it wholeheartedly contributes to the narrative that they are currently telling and I think that mm. that is truly the success of this graphic novel, I think, versus a lot of the other ones that came out after the series. Because it does such a great job of utilizing what was established in the original series and taking elements from that to just further support this new narrative that they are telling and giving us so much more context and making things so much more dynamic than they could have been without without it. And I, I think that that's always like the interesting part is that when you bring up, like you start like kind of going back to moments in the past or you go back mm. to like, again, it's this idea of like how judicious Legend of Korra was with its flashbacks. And I think is one of its greatest strengths is that it never went back to do these like uber fan servicey like flashbacks because we didn't need that. But the moments yeah. that they did need them, 
it was it was perfect for supporting and adding to the narrative that they were trying to tell. And I think that okay. that is one of the greatest strengths in the search. Mm. Oh no, one hundred percent. Like it, all it does is kind of elevate that ev- everything that's happening in the present. Yes. Each like every time it's put in in a certain area, it is always to reflect on what has just happened in that previous scene, and then elevate what is going to happen afterwards. And they all just tie in together. Like even though you know it's a flashback, you can see the importance of it, of that moment, and how it is tying into the story as a whole it doesn't feel shoehorned in at all which like in quite a lot of cases when there are flashbacks it does feel really quite jarring or or anything like that but in this case it just it doesn't at all and it's i think it's just really well done yeah oh all right folks well that brings us to the end of today's show and the end of part two we have the final and third part of the search ahead of us so thank you, Fran, again, for joining me on the second leg of this journey. Uh, can you tell listeners where they can find you? I can indeed. So for the Avatar fans that are here, you can find me on YouTube at A Healthy Dose of Fran, where I release videos every Sunday on both Avatar and Percy Jackson. So if you want to find out what would have happened if Cora had been kidnapped by the Red Lotus as a child or what Avatar as a sporting community is like you can find me there at a healthy dose of Fran um you can also find me on Instagram at a healthy dose of Fran and on Twitter at a dose of Fran and then for any Percy Jackson fans that may or may not be here or anyone who wants to join the Percy Jackson fandom I have my own podcast now doing a read-along of the Percy Jackson series called the best damn camp and you can find the social media for that podcast at uh what is it again best damn camp pod on twitter and instagram um and the podcast is on all platforms as well and yeah that that is me (laughs) very cool uh and of course you can find out find us on legend of portalcast uh on facebook and instagram Portalcast Pod on Twitter and Legend of Portalcast on our website. I uh, just want to do a quick shout out. I uh, um, apologize that we kind of fell behind on social media this past week. I have been battling a cold. I am finally over. It was actually like when we were recording last week was when I felt it coming on. And Oof. then after that, I was just in bed for the next couple of days and I just was not in a good place but uh we're gonna have more uh supplement uh material more screenshots and stills to go along with this discussion because uh it's it is just so juicy so good and again like just we are so privileged to have this as avatar fans uh to be able to have as additional content it's really wonderful um, and then if you want to be a patron, a supporter of the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash legend of portal cast. Um, we've got some cool, uh, we got an episode of uh, harmonic convergence that we're going to be releasing this month. That's our Patreon exclusive podcast that we are going to be diving into comparisons between Zuko and redemption arcs and Kylo Ren and rise of Skywalker. Oh, so gonna be we're going to be trying, we're trying out a new model uh, for this recording too. So if you want to check that out, uh, find us on Patreon. Uh, we're also going to be uh, at the end of this first month, we're going to be releasing our first avatar D and D episode. Uh, but if you want to listen in 
to the original test pilot we're releasing, you can also become a patron and find it there. But folks, for the meantime, and until we are here next week with part three of The Search, thank you, Fran. Thank you, fans. And let us leave.